you know, you barely pay your bills, you know, you barely paying your rent. And it's like, when you get so much a high of a bond like that, like... Welcome back to A Steep Road to Freedom. I'm Malikta Malaku. And I'm Selena Cumming. For those tuning in for the first time, A Steep Road to Freedom is a limited series podcast from the ACLU of Ohio. We're here to build a bail reform movement, educate the public, organize our constituents, and mobilize for change. We're covering everything from pretrial 101, conservative interest in bail reform, risk assessment tools, intersectionality, and more. Last week, we decoded risk assessments, which are algorithms designed to predict the likelihood that someone will flee if released from jail and any potential danger they may pose to the public. We revealed their inherent flaws with a decorated academic and bail reform expert, Professor Stephen DeMuth. This week, we'll have a pronounced focus on youth. We're covering everything from the phenomenon of bindover, youth housed in adult facilities, young people forced to raise bail for parents and guardians, and the no-bail option for detained young people in our state. Malekta, how do you define detained youth? Detained youth refer to young people awaiting a hearing, a sentence, or placement in a residential or detention facility. In Ohio, hundreds of young people are detained in a restrictive setting before they've been formally charged, most of whom are apprehended for low-level, nonviolent offenses. So getting back to bail, is there a bond schedule for juvenile defendants similar to how the adult system works? No bond schedule, but I want to remind our listeners that people under the age of 18 are not eligible for bail in the state of Ohio. Youth in detention are required to remain incarcerated until their next scheduled court date or placement order enacted by the judge. And if you look nationally, 4,000 young people are detained for technical violations of probation conditions or for status offenses, which are behaviors that are not law violations for adults, like disturbances in school that are reported to police officers. And for almost a quarter of all youth in juvenile facilities, the most serious charge leveled against them is a technical violation. And what constitutes a technical violation? So this can range from simply failing to report to a probation officer, attempting to run away, incomplete community service requirements, or falling short on follow-up referrals. These minor violations can result in long stays in restrictive, detrimental, prison-like detention environments. Almost half of youth held for status offenses are there for over 90 days, and almost a quarter are held in heavily restrictive facilities. And depending on the severity of the alleged offense, young people can be transferred to adult courts in a phenomenon known as bindover. Youth bound over to the adult system are then eligible for bail. However, bound over youth continue to suffer the harms of pretrial detention given the relative age of arrest and limited access to finances. Youth become vulnerable to abuse, neglect, and trauma when housed in these adult facilities. There's so much to unpack here. That's why I sat down with Kayla Burton, Policy Director for the Juvenile Justice Coalition. Let's take a listen. Again, my name is Kayla Burton. I am the Policy Director with the Juvenile Justice Coalition in Ohio. And we are a statewide nonprofit organization. We work individually and also in coalition with various advocacy organizations across the state and other state partners to advocate for and with Ohio's youth who have been directly impacted by the juvenile justice system from prevention through to involvement with the adult court. So we really are focused on increasing positive outcomes for youth 
particularly youth of color who are disproportionately affected by the juvenile justice system, families and communities. And we also advocate for community-based research informed and culturally appropriate supports and programs to help reduce and prevent youth involvement with the juvenile justice system. Incredible work. I do want to add for our listeners that the Juvenile Justice Coalition helped decriminalize truancy in the state of Ohio. Truancy is missing a certain number of days in school. Truancy and the criminalization of truancy disproportionately affected Black youth. Uh, mm-hmm. So that campaign victory was huge and had you know resounding effects throughout the state of Ohio, including where I worked prior to the ACLU at Glenville High School. I just wanted to say thank you for highlighting that. And that was incredible work that was led by our former executive director, who we lost earlier this year, Amber Evans. And so I just want to bring her name into the space and honor her memory and um, make it be known that that's part of what her mission was. And that's aligned with what our mission is now as we move forward. So may she rest in peace and power. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So I wanted to discuss the status of juvenile bail and pretrial detention in the state of Ohio. What does that process look like? So in Ohio, the way pretrial detention works is that essentially a judge decides if kids get put into detention. Some counties use objective assessments to determine if a youth should be held in, a, in detention, but some do not. It would then essentially be based on the judge's opinion, which is informed by the law. So the short answer, young people are not eligible for a pre-adjudicated release. As in Ohio, there is essentially no juvenile cash bail system that exists within the juvenile justice system. The only exception to this would be for youth who have been charged as a serious youthful offender or who have been bound over to adult court and jails. And so then they're entitled to adult rights such as bail and a speedy trial. However, there are some counties who have begun to implement detention alternative programs for youth who are considered eligible for secure detention, but they may not pose a safety or flight risk. Instead of them being committed to a detention center, they are supervised in the community while they await their adjudication hearing. And so... Alternatives to the detention um, could include like supervised release programs such as home detention, electronic monitoring, day and evening reporting centers, or local treatment programs. In Ohio, there's an initiative called the Juvenile Detention Alternatives Initiative, JDAI. And in Ohio, there are 14 counties currently that have this program implemented. And it's a national initiative to work with counties to start implementing different juvenile detention alternatives. You mentioned that it's typically under the judge's discretion whether a young person will be sent to a restrictive juvenile detention facility, sent to a residential placement facility, Mm -hmm. or anything in between. Is there anything that's guiding a judge's decision? Can you talk more about judicial discretion in that decision? Yeah, so there are assessment tools, the Ohio Youth Assessment System, which judges can use to determine a youth's risk level. However, It's empirically based, but there are inherent biases that can be like included in these systems. So they're not always the best tools to use. And also, not all counties in Ohio have an assessment tool. So the problem with that is that if counties leave it up to the judge's discretion, 
any implicit bias that may be involved in making those decisions can affect the outcomes for the youth. And so also in that you have prosecutorial discretion as well. And so depending upon what's included in a complaint that's filed with the court, that also can influence the judge's decision on whether or not to hold a youth in detention or release them to the community. And that can be determined by law enforcement officers or prosecutors as well. Another part of the judge's determination on whether or not to hold a youth could be due to the fact that they don't have a family member to be released to in the community. So if a law enforcement officer, say, brings in a youth who's truant and they may not have a parent at home, then they wouldn't be eligible to be released. So there are a number of different ways that could determine what type of youth are being held in attention. So if a young person has an unreliable guardian or doesn't have accessible parental figures, maybe have some housing stability issues, they're going to be sent to a juvenile detention facility, even though they haven't been charged with a crime yet, even though Mm -hmm. they're still technically innocent, Mm-hmm. It's simply because they don't have a reliable place to return. Yeah. Wow. And that's telling because, as we know, most detention centers, they have negative impacts on a youth's development. They can have long-term effects on a youth. So we further criminalize social problems and further harm kids by doing things that we think are actually supposed to help them. And it seems with so much under the judge's discretion that we're still violating this idea of young people innocent until proven guilty by placing Mm -hmm. them in these facilities. Absolutely. So I wanted to talk about parents held in pretrial. During my experience in direct service, I saw that there were many young people who are working to pay their parents' bail, to pay their older brothers' and sisters' bail. Can you speak upon the impact of, of mass incarceration and the crisis of the cash bail system on Ohio's youth and their communities? Mm-hmm. I want to start off by answering this question that you're absolutely right. Mass incarceration in Ohio and the cash bail system is absolutely a form of family separation, and it can have long-lasting impacts on families and youth as they develop into adulthood. And just nationally, some numbers that I've pulled is one in 12 American children, more than 5.7 million kids under the age of 18, have experienced parental incarceration at some point during their lives. That number should be appalling to people. Keeping a parent in jail can have a lasting impact on a family, particularly if a parent is the primary caregiver. Around 80% of women in jail are single moms. And so just spending a short amount of time behind bars can lead to a parent losing custody of their child. And once you lose custody, the amount of effort and time that it would take to gain custody back is enormous. And that puts even further strain on families. Research shows that having a parent behind bars can have a destabilizing effect on children. um, And it can have emotional and social consequences such as trauma, trouble in schools, behavioral issues, homelessness, 
and leads to an increase in foster care roles and welfare. So the trauma is then further compounded by the reality that families who can't afford to pay bail are unlikely to also have the money or the resources needed to pay for family and individual counseling. So it's like a cycle that continues to go round and round. Even after parents come back from jail or from prison, it has further collateral consequences when they return home due to having a criminal record, not being able to secure employment or housing or financial assistance. And so that places even further strain on the family and places them again in this cycle of poverty where they're not able to take care of their family because of the weight of the juvenile justice system and cash bail. So it sounds like from, you know, the emphasis on judicial discretion in keeping kids held in juvenile facilities to the role of cash bail in keeping families apart and keeping particularly single mothers behind bars because of an inability to pay cash bail, that this crisis is a juvenile justice issue as well. Absolutely. I think that justice for me starts at home and it starts within the community. And when we start to put in these practices like cash bail, et cetera, in the name of justice, we have to look at how that actually impacts people in real time and how that impacts youth who have parents who they're not able to see. And I just go back to my childhood. Both of my parents suffered from drug addiction. They were in and out of jail (laughs) during my childhood. So I can remember times like going to go visit my mom in the Justice Center in Cincinnati and having to like sit there and see her behind a glass wall And just remembering the trauma of that, if there's no one communicating what's going on to the kids who are at home, how will they even know where their parents are, you know? Well, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for being vulnerable. And is there anything (laughs) that you'd want to leave our listeners with? Yeah. um, So thank you. Our focus is that justice starts at home and in the community and with love. and so. We have to start to really push that message home that there are ways that have been proven to be more effective at promoting positive youth development and rehabilitation than a prison cell or a jail cell. And so if you all want to learn more about the juvenile justice system and also the Juvenile Justice Coalition, you can check out our website at www.jjohio.org. There's some information on there about the school to prison pipeline, about juvenile justice data collection, and some of the other issues that we focus on, such as community-based alternatives to youth incarceration. And I want to say thank you again to Malekta and the ACLU of Ohio for having us. Thank you, Kayla. This week's episode is sponsored by the Ohio Organizing Collaborative. Formed in 2007, the Ohio Organizing Collaborative builds transformative relational power with everyday Ohioans for statewide social, racial, and economic justice. Check out their work at ohorganizing.org. Now, back to the episode. 
We sat down with Danielle to discuss her son's harrowing experience in Cleveland's juvenile detention system. This interview has been edited for length and may be disturbing to some listeners. So when he walked up to me, he was with these crowd of boys. And he was the youngest one out of their whole group. He was the only kid out of their whole little group that never had a charge, never been to jail. All the rest of the little boys, they didn't been in and out of juvenile, like since probably since they were younger. So like they had all these issues. They had family issues, you know. These the same little boys that used to be outside to like one, two, three o'clock in the morning when you all supposed to be fed, ate, and in bed, getting ready for school, you know? So it's like, as stuff, like, as things, like, gradually with him, I think the change in him. It's like, it started getting worse, sir, to where, as you know, he started running away, you know, running away from home, you know? I, I got to the point to where it's like, when I found out that he was sneaking out the house, I put him on punishment. Like, so now you can't go out at all, like, since you're sneaking. So, you know, he started getting rebelling to where he started running away. When I found out that the drug was getting worse, as I talked to him about the drug use, you know, he act like, you know, I'm not going to never do it again. But then it's like I started to see different, like, as it went on. So I told him, I'm like, this has to stop. So I went and I contacted the treatment center. I actually think at that time he only agreed to it because he seen my determination for me to get him help. So he just agreed with it, you know, like, okay, I'll come to treatment or whatever. I went through all this work, had to wait literally like six months, probably over that, almost a year to get him for them to even accept him. And he literally went on a Monday and left on a Tuesday. So when did the arrest and the bind over happen? They put him in a couple of programs or whatever. He was doing good in that. So the rest and the bind over he got in this one program. It was through Phoenix Court with the juvenile. And I actually think that was the only program that I can see that helped them, you know, that helped them out a little bit. Because it was a, you know, he had a therapist. And mm-hmm. I think that's what he needed all along. And so with this last program he was in, he was actually doing, I, I can see a change. But I think that change also came when Fran ended up getting shot in front of him. So, you know, I had to go pick him up from homicide. And like literally after that, I really like got him like really therapy because I'd seen that he needed it. Like because that was like traumatizing for him. So after his friend got killed in front of him, he literally like started sleeping in my room. And that's very unusual. But then I noticed, you know, he was telling me he was having nightmares. He was having dreams. Kept close eye on him. I kept close eye on him because I'm like, you know, he's going through something. So he was doing fine. Like after that, after his friend died, I think like a change. And I think, you know, he changed his environment. He started changing the people he hang around because he see with his own eyes how things can just change all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. So he started wanting to do better. I ended up getting him a job at a nursing home. You know, he was doing dietary there. Before school started, he was working there in the summertime. So, you know, I think the change in him, you know, he wanted to get a job. He wanted to start making his own money. So it's like once he showed me that that's what he was ready to do, me as his mom, I felt as though it was my responsibility to make sure that he does what he wants to do, especially if it's positive. So I was kind of happy, like, you know, but before I get that phone call, I was taking him to school. And he did. That was his first year at that school. So for my house, for me to get there driving was 14 minutes. So I dropped him off at school every morning and picked him up because he didn't know the bus route. He didn't even know the neighborhood. This is my first time living way out here. So I'm like, 
we really don't know the bus routes. We really don't know. I'm like, so can y'all give him a printout of the bus routes that he's supposed to catch? And so the one that he started catching, literally he had to take two buses and a rabbit just to get home. He wasn't even catching a bus a whole week before this incident happened. So he only knew how to get to that bus stop to this point, to this point to get home. So I got a phone call. I was asleep because I worked third shift. So I got a phone call from a young lady and she was like literally like screaming and hollering. And just just imagine the screams. And I just broke down and like jumped up like and started crying. Like, what's going on? I'm asking her. She's like, I don't know. A lot of boys jumped him. And just so I'm asking her like, well, where are you at? I'm jumping in my car. And I'm like, well, where are you at? What's going on? And I had a hard time finding. I know where the school at, but she was trying to tell me like the way he walks to the bus stop is like past the school and then like a gas station. And I turned the corner. I went farther up past the school and I turned the corner. And then that's when I seen the gas station. I seen just police and yellow tape, you know, and. I just like panicked because I didn't know what was going on. So I parked my car and I jump out. I'm asking the police officers like, what's going on? And they act like they don't want to respond to me. I said, he's my child. He's 15. Like, what's going on? They wouldn't let me see him. Like, just left me standing right there. I'm talking to principals and I'm talking to security guards from the school. And they was like, we don't know. But it, and the security guard told me herself, she was like, I sink the group of boys standing at the corner. Don't now one of them go to this school. She was like, I think them. She was like, he got word of what was going on at the end of the day, right before he was about to go home. And he went out a back door way on the other side of the school because he heard that he's getting jumped, but he actually don't know if it's true or not. So in his mind, he like, you know, I don't want to get jumped. I'm about to just leave a couple of minutes early to defuse the problem. He walked out of the side of his school, walked through the graveyard, through an open cut gate, Walk through the graveyard to try to avoid these boys. And one of them must have spot him. And they chased him down the street, literally like surrounded him. Like he's like in one big circle. And he like, what's going on? He got into it with one boy in school that go to the school that called all his friends from the east side. You know, he called all these boys up here to fight him. So he only see the one boy that he got into it. That's the only one he recognized out of all these boys outside. So he was like, yeah, remember we was in school? And he like, man, I don't want to fight you. So the boy tried to swing on him, but he missed. And then next thing you know, they all just jumped in and started attacking him. And so then he's just like out there by himself getting beat up by all these boys. You got these cars riding past, people video recording for what I hear. And for what I, I actually have a video that was sent to me when they found out I was his mother. And people just recording. When was anybody going to get out and help him? He's getting stumped constantly. Like, everybody recording, everybody video recording. And it's like this one video that was sent to me, like, when I seen it, like, I just, like, broke down because I'm like, in the video, it shows he got knocked down. It shows that he got thrown across the, the ground. It shows that y'all all stumped on him and kicked on him. He got up every single time and still walked the other direction. And But y'all continue to keep on following him, continue to keep bothering him. He walked away several times and y'all continue to just keep bothering him, keep messing with him. Y'all already jumped him. Y'all did what y'all had to do. Just leave him alone. So then they, the witnesses outside was telling me when I was out there waiting on the police, like that boy kept walking away. He kept telling them boys he didn't want to fight. You know, the barber, people at the barbershop said they was out there screaming at them, like, leave him alone. 
leave him alone. You know, like, so when I got there, they had him on the ambulance and I'm like, you know, what's going on? They was like, we're going to take him to, um, the first they would say they were going to take him to Metro. But then they was like, no, we can't take him to Metro because the boy he stabbed, he's at Metro. So they was like, we're going to take him to um, Fairview Cleveland Clinic. So I didn't see him until I left my house, which was at night before I went to work, like 11 o'clock. So, you know, I haven't seen him since then. So when I seen the ambulance pull up, I ran over there because I want to see my child when he gets off this ambulance. So literally when I ran to that back door, like I just freaked out because it's like he didn't even look like my baby. Like he was beaten, swollen. One side of his head was like bigger than the other one. You know, his eyes was all blacked and, you know, his thumb was messed up. Like, you know, he didn't even look like himself. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, are you serious? Like, what was this all about? So when I seen the detective, he was like, oh, I do remember you. He was like, I remember your son, too. When his friend got murdered, they took him downtown. They asked me permission to question him, and I gave it to him. So they knew him from a previous case, the same detective that was on his case. So me and my son's father was outside talking, and literally they waited until I came in by myself and looked through the mirror of the door and literally called me in there and told them not to let his father back there because I don't know that much about the law. You know, I didn't know that I shouldn't allow them to question him. But see, they did that because they knew that his father would have never allowed that without an attorney. Mm-hmm. So they play on my weakness because I let them do it the first time in the other case. So why couldn't he come back there to see his own child? That's because he y'all knew that he was not going to let y'all question him without an attorney. He didn't even know the boy that was attacking him and he attacked him back. But at that time, he had a knife in his hand. So he told them what happened. They put it on their body cam or whatever, and they was recording his conversation. So this one detective came to court on the prosecutor's side. So, you know, he came and the court, he testified. You know, he said in court that my son didn't have any bruises. He wasn't, nothing was wrong with him. How is that possible when you get jumped? So his lawyers showed the pictures like, do this look like there's nothing wrong with him? Like, do you see his face? Do you see him? Oh, I couldn't see because I was sitting down and he was laying in the bed. You know, it was just like every type of excuse in the world, you know, that he had. He gets arrested in juvenile, and then they send him to the adult court. The bond over here, he gets arrested in juvenile. You know, we was going through the court here. The, I guess it's like the pretrial or stuff like that until he got bonded over. His lawyer had hired a therapist, a doctor from a hospital to do his assessment because she felt as though he shouldn't have been bonded over. Mm-hmm. So she hired him and he just was like, how are you going to bond over a 15-year-old that don't even have a prior record? Mm-hmm. He doesn't have a record. So they bind him over it, and he was how old? Fifteen. He was fifteen. Fifteen. How was his experience? So since he's been in there, when he first got admitted in there, he was getting questioned by a staff member that was supposed to be a family member of the victim had threatened him. So when he gets in there, he's sitting down. Um, me, his dad go visit him on a visit. And he tells us, like, you know, it was a, you know, gentleman in here that works here that, you know, asked me about my case. And he, you know, as soon as he came in, he said to him, little nigga, you the nigga, you the little nigga who killed my nephew. So my son looking like, what are you talking about? You know, like 
he haven't even been in there. He's still on the, the medical pond. He's still taking medication. You know, he's still swollen from this incident, you know, and you were in there threatening him. Mm-hmm. I told the guard that was in the visitation room, like, I need to talk to someone now. So he called his therapist and she works real good with him. She's his therapist in there. And she came in there and she wrote down everything that we said. She took our statements and she literally, and she sent the email out to all the administrators down there. And she told me that someone to get in contact with me. But I went home and it was just like weighing on my heart heavy. I said, no, this is serious. Like, I'm not going to wait for nobody to call me back. So I literally went down there the next morning. I went down there and I talked to the administrator and I told her, I said, look here. I said, I don't know who this guard is. I said, but my son already in this facility and I, I don't think he should be here. I said, and then him getting here and him feeling like he's not comfortable here or him feeling scared about being here because he worried about what a guard is going to do to him. I said, that's unacceptable. He should never feel that way. I said, I can't control how other kids think or feel because kids are going to be kids. I said, but when it comes down to adults, they're supposed to be here to protect him. I said, he's feeling like he's uncomfortable around this person. So did he have a bail that was set? Not then. He just got a bail when he got that bond over, when he got bonded over. So he got a bail. Yes. And what was? The prosecutor had the bail at five. He wanted the bail to be $500,000. $500,000 for someone who is 15 years old mm-hmm. bonded over yep. $500,000. Yeah, that's what he yeah. wanted it to be. The prosecutor wanted it to be $500,000, but the judge, she didn't do the $500,000. She switched it to 250000 That is so frustrating. Yeah, it is. That is so frustrating. It is. This is like at the heart of the campaign, that fundamental yes. issue, because your son should not have been he should not have gone through what he's gone through no. in that adult facility. Mm-hmm. And there should cash bail should never have been in a factor. Yeah. Now, recently, me and his dad, you know, we actually think he'll do better at home until he finishes his trial. Yeah. You know, so I would prefer him to be home, yeah. you know, until he gets done with his court hearing. Because I sometimes I fear the worst. So... I want to spend as much as time with him as I can, you know, while he's only still 15. He's not a flight risk. He's not going to go anywhere. Like he knows he gets threats in jail all the time. It's frustrating. And, you know, it's a lot of people, you know, it's a lot of money, money that we don't have. You know, it's a struggle every day. You know, you barely pay your bills. You know, you barely paying your rent. And it's like, when you get so much a high of a bond like that, like, and that, and you know that that's the only way your child ever to come home, it's depressing. Like, it's depressing. Talk to me a little bit about your son, about who he is. He was just like a sweet kid. Like, he make you laugh. Like, he likes to joke a lot. His siblings, they love him. His brother acts about him constantly, like, day and night. Everybody love him. And then it's like, you know, like he'll walk in a room and he's just so respectable. He'll walk in the house and, hey, how you doing? Like, you know, so it's like when I start having problems with him, you know, half of my family and people I know, like, no. Like, and it's like, yes, like this is what's going on. But like, they couldn't believe it. They just was like, no, we know he didn't change like that. You know, he was improving. Like, he's not going to be perfect. He's not. I'm not even expecting it. 
you know, but he was doing better before this incident happened, you know, and he has, for him to be 15 years old, he has went through and seen things that I never seen, and I'm 35. Ohio's youth are suffering from the harms of systemic pretrial detention. They are being separated from guardians and caregivers unable to afford cash bail in the adult system, and then are subject to excessive detention in juvenile correction settings. Remember, pretrial detention is a juvenile justice issue. Stay tuned and stay activated. This podcast is a project of the ACLU of Ohio. Don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe. Again, we're your co-hosts, Malik Tamalaku and Selena Cumming. And this podcast would not be made possible without our village of amazing colleagues, Claire Chevrier, James Kazmatka, and Jeff Miller. Music and editing by Dan Rogan. Mix and mastering by Sean Rule Hoffman. Don't forget to follow us on social media. You can catch us on Twitter at ACLU Ohio and on Facebook and Instagram at ACLUOH. Check out our bill website at ohbillreform.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.